You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 20. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Chris Sims. On today's show, we interviewed Jack Berry, a Mayan archaeologist that used LIDAR extensively on Mayan sites in Belize. We'll talk to him about remote sensing and some other techniques he's used. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Chris Sims. Hi, and uh, we're going to go ahead and get to the show. Uh, Today, we've got Jack Berry joining us. Uh, Jack and I were colleagues in Belize several years ago, and it's been really cool to keep up with him and uh, hear about the research he's been doing. Jack, thanks for joining us today and taking some time out of your travels uh, to chat with us on the Archaeotech podcast. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you've been up to? Well, thanks for having me on the show, guys. As uh, Chris said, um, we worked in Belize together, I think maybe as far back as 2009. So it has been a while. Um, I have a master's degree in archaeology from Trent University in Ontario. And some of the things that I do uh, while focusing on the Maya um, include specializing in GIS. And uh, recently, we've incorporated a little bit of LIDAR technology, too. So uh, a little bit more on the technical side of things. And then when I'm not in Belize, I've done a bunch of CRM, too, here in Ontario and uh, as well in, in the States. So I got a question. What what made you want to get into remote sensing in the areas that you work? Like what what kicked that whole thing off for you? Well, um, it's interesting because the region we work in, which is sort of west central Belize, uh, along the Guatemalan border, is really uh, a rugged landscape. And so the work that we were doing uh, was focusing on a couple of sites that have been known for a long time, but because it's a really rugged area, it doesn't lend itself very well to surface uh, surveying. So we know that in this area, there must be tons of other sites out there, but we just don't know exactly where they are. So in a sense, the area lends itself, the landscape and the tree cover and the vegetation lend itself very nicely to remote sensing as a way to look at, uh, you know, trying to figure out where other sites are, things like that, because it's just simply so hard to get around on foot. Did you guys rely on, uh, or is, have, have Mayanists in the past relied on uh, just trekking through the jungle or, or accounts from um, indigenous people there to, to find sites in the past? Well, yeah. Um, it's one of those ones where uh, the region has been worked on by worked in by archaeologists for over a century, basically, at this yeah. point. Um, but very few sites. Uh, and so it has been a lot of on-foot with horseback, mule trains, bringing in supplies, uh, machetes, all that stuff, just uh, trying to get to the few sites that were known about. And then interestingly, the area is also still farmed by uh, modern people. And so there are lots of guys in the region that when you go talk to them will tell you about sites. Oh, I know of a site over there, or you should come see this one. And uh, it's it's funny because by definition, sites can vary, um, as most people in archaeology will attest to. So when they might be talking about a site, it could be a single mound. Um, but rarely you actually get some big monumental architecture and epicenters and things like that. So uh, it, it has been primarily on foot, hacking through the bush, machetes, and having guys that live in the area as guides and uh, use a lot of the trails for hunting and things like that is is invaluable. Nice, nice. Do you guys primarily use, uh, say, one um, 
you know, mostly one technique for remote sensing like LIDAR, or is it a, a whole suite of things that you use in different, say, percentages? I don't know how to phrase that. Mm -hmm. Well, we had uh, some satellite imagery, a combination of things uh, to create a basic elevation map um, for the region. Um, those came from two or three different satellites in different bandwidths and bands, infrared, near-infrared, things like that. And then LIDAR was actually just, um, we acquired that data, my supervisor and the, the project um, manager and principal investigator, Giles Iannone, uh, he and a big consortium of people across Western Belize got a huge flight. They did a huge, you know, like 900 hours or something like that Jeez. of LIDAR and did an area of over 1,200 square kilometers. <laughs> oh my God. So this is, this was, that was done in 2013. Uh, and it covers a massive area of West Central Belize. And one of the hopes with this um, this sort of collaborative grant to do that is it actually puts together one of the largest patches of uh, contiguous LIDAR data basically anywhere as far as archaeology goes. So it's, uh, it's a pretty unique opportunity and something very cool to have been a um, little bit of a part of. Yeah. Now, 2013 is getting real close to when... Uh you know, the discussion was going to lead to this, but getting real close to when drones, you know, hand operated drones were, going to, were starting mm -hmm. to fly LIDAR units. Um, do you think, uh, looking back on it, that that was a better deal? Uh, I guess, especially if you got a grant to pay for it, but if that was a better deal financially, really, than doing, I guess, smaller areas with, with smaller equipment, say drones, rather than, because I'm assuming when you guys had the big survey done, it was on a, a large aircraft with a, you know, mounted LIDAR unit. Yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, not not a real big aircraft. I think it's just sort yeah. of a little Cessna light airplane oh. or something. But yeah, big, it was bigger than a drone, with, anyway. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, but you know, it's one of those ones. And with with uh, lidar, it's sort of what your research goal is and what sort of um, area you're looking to cover. I think those drones can probably be. I've never worked with one personally, but uh, I know that they can be really helpful if you're looking at a small area because I think with those, the real uh, the, the ticket is that the the operator with the remote control can't really be that far away from it. So obviously if you have a sort of uh, circumscribed area, a particular site or um, just something that you want to have your LIDAR cover, um, you can ha do those drones. And I think that's pretty useful because, like you said, the cost is the real backbreaker with this type of technology. Um, I, I think that cost should be coming down over time. But those drones definitely sort of bring it down to the level where um, most projects can afford something like that if they want to, as opposed to these massive flyovers where it's costing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, tons of man hours and all that stuff. So I guess it's one of those ones where you just kind of have to, it's what your research sort of dictates. dictates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know a company like uh, Arc Aerial is making, um, is making drone units that will specifically hold uh, LIDAR units and some other remote sensing techniques. Um, and I know their drones go for a couple thousand dollars for their bigger ones that can handle most wind conditions and payloads. Mm. I don't, I don't know how much the LIDAR add on costs, but, uh, you know, to own, to own your own setup for a few thousand dollars seems pretty, seems pretty reasonable. Um, before we get too far into this, we probably should ask you this first for the audience members that don't know, can you define LIDAR and what it is when we say you're looking at a LIDAR image? Like, what are you getting back? What is that telling you? Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, LIDAR stands for light detection and ranging. So uh, it's just a 
you know, it, it, LIDARs, I guess, and um, the shortened version of that condensed mm -hmm. into one simple to use word. But basically the way I sort of like to describe it, and this is maybe a little bit um, vanilla, but it's, it's sort of getting like an x-ray vision shot, like Superman's x-ray vision onto nice. uh, <laughs> what, nice. what's, um, you know, on the ground. And the real benefit of something like LIDAR is for an area that is heavily forested or covered where uh, you can't see through that stuff. So that's why we sort of, you know, obviously if you're in a arid environment or somewhere with less vegetation, uh, there's, you're not seeing through anything necessarily, but what it's returning to you in either case is an elevation model that shows the contours of the ground below. And because of that, you can then identify archaeological features such as buildings, whether some small, some large, uh, and, and get a picture of what's there without actually having to set foot on the ground, and that's the real advantage. Okay, okay. Yeah, because it sees, it sees through most, most vegetation, right? Uh, yeah, the technology is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. With different filters and processing methods, you can eliminate uh, an enormous amount of vegetation where, you know, if you were to pull up a Google map of Western Belize, all you see is just sort of a homogenous green, you know, tree top view. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no contour of the ground below for the most part. And you don't appreciate or understand how maybe hilly or rugged it is. But then all of a sudden you get this 3D LIDAR data back that uh, it just you see it's hard to hard to imagine uh, that that's all underneath there. So it's pretty pretty remarkable that you can remove all those different tree covers and things like that. Nice, nice. Okay, so Jack, you had mentioned some of the other methods in remote sensing. Do any of those come anywhere near as close to LIDAR in terms of detecting sites with any good accuracy? With any good accuracy, no. LIDAR's uh, pretty pretty unique in its ability to detect things uh, where things like aerial imagery and other satellite imagery have sort of failed um, for a whole number of reasons. But people have tried to look at uh, different types of aerial footage and remote sensing techniques um, with infrared and different types of angled lighting uh, to understand what's underneath. Uh, especially in vegetated areas, but uh, the, the simple answer is absolutely not. LiDAR blows that all out of the water. Nice. And I've seen, uh, I, I remember your uh, poster at the SAAs in Austin a couple years ago uh, where you had explained about uh, how LiDAR works in terms of generating like a point cloud from the aerial unit, and then you strip the point cloud off, and that's all of the uh, the jungle, and then you've got you know, the digital elevation model that you had mentioned earlier. Um, are there any ways to combine the point cloud of the jungle with other methods? Like uh, I think you had mentioned uh, detecting different types of vegetation. Yeah. So uh, technically speaking, LIDAR is there, there's, you know, that could be a podcast on its own, but essentially what you're getting with, as you said, the point cloud. So when the plane is flying over, it's shooting down, uh, pulses from a laser basically uh, at you know millions of times per second so it's um, then the device is actually listening for those pulses to actually come back up and record them so one 
pulse may actually go all the way through and you'll get multiple returns on it. So you'll get returns from when it hits the top of the tree canopy, then you might get a return from where it's running into some interference sort of in the middle of the tree canopy and then you'll get it again from the ground level. So with all kinds of different post-processing uh, with that data, you can essentially boil it down to whatever, again, what your research dictates. If you're looking at tree cover and you want to know things like that or how tall trees are, you can obviously learn those things. Um, as far as in the different types of vegetation, I'm not sure that that's exactly the right, uh, the right tool for it as opposed to other you know, heat based imagery or uh, different infrared types of sensors. Um, but yeah, so you, you can really have a lot of options with what you want to do with that point cloud data. And that's another, that's a field that I'm not terribly involved in is actually the, the processing of that data. But I know it's very technical and it's pretty, pretty powerful. All right, so maybe you can answer this question for me because um, I've been wondering how LIDAR does this, but most of the archaeological images you see associated with LIDAR are just terrain. Uh, all the vegetation has been removed, and mostly they're gray too, and I feel like you can probably lay some photogrammetry on top of that if you really wanted to. But anyway, um, I've been wondering how it eliminates the vegetation, and it sounds like you just explained that, and I think it's probably the the narrow focused beam, like um, the laser, the light that it's using, um, like you said, can get the tops of trees, but it also gets like in the, the point right next to that, it might be shooting all the way through and hitting the ground. And with post, post processing, you just, you just acknowledge the ones that are impacting the ground or, or harder structures that aren't vegetation would be my guess. But then if that's the case, how do you tell it? How do you tell your post processing to differentiate between, say, um, even like wooden structures, or maybe it's just stone structures and features versus really dense trees and things like that? Do you know how that's done, or am I off the mark on this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, because it's elevation based, uh, and it's going to return different uh, different elevations based on what it's hitting. Uh, what it has to be anchored to is an actual fixed. GPS point on the ground that gives you a ground level elevation. So before you get in the airplane and send it flying all over the place, there has to be sort of a benchmark on the ground that then you use to uh, look at the rest of the data that it's giving you and from there build the model based off of the one fixed point that's uh, from somebody actually going on the ground and recording an elevation. So Jack, with uh, the results of, of uh, you know the LiDAR scans, do you have like false positives that need to be ground truthed uh, with people in the field um, or even like false ne false negatives that you can kind of uh, reconcile against surveys? Yeah, there's always anomalies sort of in the data and those can come from any number of different things. Uh, and sometimes that, that can even be things like if you have a zinc roof on your house it might return a very obscure elevation because of the glare, something like that. Um, and so different surfaces will have different effects on the data that's being recorded. Um, you know, things like water, uh, ice can have very different effects on it. Um, but uh, as far as false negatives and positives, that's, that's sort of more of a question of what are you trying to identify or what are you looking at? So while you in terms of archaeology, you might see something that looks like a big mound uh, and think it's some sort of architecture. 
uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it is always. Um, th those are the things that end up needing to be ground truth because uh, what all, all that it is is a model. Cool. So uh, again, with the results of this, have uh, the scans that you've worked with in uh, Belize, has it changed kind of the research questions that you're dealing with? So like me being familiar with uh, pedestrian survey in Belize, I, I know that uh, you know, the earlier days of uh, survey in Belize focused primarily on like monumental sites and um, only recently, you know, in recent decades has the focus shifted toward like household and like non-elite archaeology is um, is the result of LIDAR data also changing kind of your uh, your focus there? Oh, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um sort of in one sense, because LIDAR is very fresh and new, especially in that region, um, there's not a lot of precedent for it. So it's more, a lot of the questions are more so about acquiring the data and then sort of seeing what you've got. But it, as you've mentioned, uh, there's been sort of a, a focus for the last probably 20 years or so, um, shifting towards household and community archaeology, trying to understand what the people living outside of the monumental site cores were up to, how they were organized and things like that, because the basically that is about 98% of your population is people not living in the royal residential palaces and courtyards and things like that. So with the LIDAR, um, it, it's, it does have a very fine resolution. It's a lot of times you can get one meter or sub one meter resolution. Wow. Uh, th there's the sort of, as far as architecture goes, the households that a lot of these common people were living in are very small mounds, uh, sometimes not even a meter, a lot of times not even a meter, if you can see them at all. So uh, with LIDAR, you can identify some of those, but in a lot of different studies, uh, some of the colleagues that I worked with, um, that those were their research questions of what can you identify based on just the LIDAR, doing a blind test, and then comparing it to what you know with uh, ground-based survey. Um, and a lot of the time, what you're seeing is that just based on the LIDAR alone, it's not nearly high enough accuracy uh, to represent all of the structures on the ground. You still cannot replace uh, LIDAR with, or sorry, you cannot replace ground-based survey with LIDAR alone. There has to be, uh, they have to work in conjunction. Gotcha. Are you sure uh, that's not just a little job security talk in there, John? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so there still is a place for surveyors in the world. They're not going to be losing their jobs anytime soon, which uh, I know guys like Chris, you appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. All right. Well, uh, the audience may not know this, but we have had some Skype issues, and I'm not sure where we are in our timing. So we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll come back with uh, the next segment in a minute. Whether you're an undergraduate majoring in archaeology or a field tech that's wondering where to go next, the Go Dig a Hole podcast is for you. A new series on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hosts Christopher and Andy answer a wide range of questions from those new to the field with help from CRM, academic and public sector archaeologists. 
This show is a companion to the blog GoDiggerHole.com and tackles questions from readers and listeners to provide a toolkit aimed to help you get a leg up in the competitive field of archaeology. Subscribe to the show via the Archaeology Podcast Network, iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. All right, we're back. And following up with what we were talking about in the last segment, um, you were mentioning how your research goals are changing and things like that, but that you still have to do pedestrian survey. But what I'm wondering is, has the nature of that pedestrian survey changed? Um, for example, do you do like targeted survey, go into LIDAR anomalies, or um, do you widen out your survey because LIDAR um, you know, kind of caught most of it sort of thing? Or, or has that changed how you guys do stuff on the ground? Well, yeah, that's uh, that's a really interesting question. And again, it's one of those ones where because it is a fairly new application of this technology, at least in the part of the world in Belize where uh, I've been working, um, those are that's the next step. So now that we've had this enormous LIDAR coverage, we can actually see a bunch of new sites. We've identified all kinds of new places. Uh, it will absolutely change the way surveying on the ground is done because traditionally, uh, you have people either walking transects or uh, doing, you know, full coverage survey of a specific area, specified area. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now, yeah, as you mentioned, you can absolutely do targeted survey, and that can be also catered to what type of research you're interested in. So whether you want to get on the ground in that area and try to count as many house mounds as you can, or if you've found a new monumental epicenter, you can hop in the Jeep and follow a point and see if you can get to that spot and then from there, you know, develop all kinds of different surveying techniques and and see what's going on. But yeah, absolutely now, um, rather than just sending people off, uh, you know, if you want to, if if we're looking for new sites, rather than sending people off on walkabout or trying to talk to locals and get a sense of where sites are, now we've seen them on the LIDAR data, but uh, we actually know where they are now. So you can uh, do targeted survey that way, for sure. You know, it's still kind of amazing to me that, I mean, you said they've been doing archaeology out there for at least 100 years, and people have been walking all over that place. It's not like it's unexplored country. And yet, you're still optimistic that you can find a monumental epicenter using LIDAR data. That's just kind of floors me that stuff like that is still out there and able to be found in that area. I guess that tells you how much um, how much cover is over the top of it, huh? Yeah, there was an area that that we worked in that was about 200 square kilometers. And in that area, we had uh, what we were calling four major centers and then uh, a whole host of minor centers. Um, Well, with with the new LIDAR, we've added another close to 12 uh, major centers in this area. So it's gone up considerably. Um, Wow. And those are all sites that... uh, are yet un as yet unnamed things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, so this is it was pretty revealing and striking that in an area that we thought maybe one of these major centers and by that that those are loaded terms, absolutely loaded terms. But where these major centers, which are sort of the big uh, monumental epicenters that have political uh, seats for religious, um, you know, semi-religious uh, kings, divine kingship, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, public architecture, um, sort of what you would typically think of when you think of maybe something like Tikal or uh, Chichen Itza, whatever, not on that same size scale, but that there are many more of them out there in a small area. So they were neighbors with one another. And then uh, 
you know, it's, it's absolutely new information for us. You know, uh, since I'm not, I don't really know a lot about Mayan archaeology. Fill me in real quick, and maybe some other people have this question too. Um, I'm wondering when you say they were neighbors, I mean, they're physically neighbors, but temporarily, um, do you think a lot of these places you're finding were um, occupied around the same time period? It sounds like it was it was relatively uh, more crowded than we kind of thought it was. Well, yeah, that's a fantastic question and absolutely one of the ones that when you're using some technology kind of like LIDAR that you, it's imperative that you're aware of stuff like that because just because they're there, uh, on the ground, not too far away from one another, absolutely does not imply that they were uh, temporaneous with mm-hmm. one another. So um, that is why, again, you know, you have to have your coupled lidar with pedestrian type of survey, and that's why you also uh, absolutely need to do excavation as well before you can make any type of claim of whether these, you know, tr- are truly neighbors, meaning occupied at the same time, or whether they had very, very different. Uh, political and historical trajectories. Are there are there stylistic or, or architectural differences you can point out in the LIDAR data? Uh, so far, nothing that uh, you can identify, um, you know, with very much confidence. Right. There's not, at least in the Maya area, there's not any major, major type of uh, form in architecture that you could see on a macro scale. There are much smaller intricacies within architecture that will give you those uh, that information. Um, but at least through the lidar, no, because again, all these buildings are covered by you know heaps of dirt and trees, and they've all been chewed up. So that's when you need uh, on the ground excavations, getting and, and doing the dirty work to actually get any uh, real information out of it. Yeah, and it's amazing how much excavation it takes to actually reveal the uh, you know the final phase of architecture on some of that monumental architecture. Because even when you do identify the the stones that formed that um, structure, a lot of it has collapsed, and so you've got like a rubble of stones that's covering. Mm-hmm. Um, the final phase of architecture and then even above that rubble, like you said, Jack, the jungle just reclaims it so quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering about mixing a few um, technologies. First off, uh, before I say that, I just had a comment on, you know, finding some of this new stuff. It's got to take weeks just to clear the vegetation off of some of these things. I mean, let alone excavation. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, you know, one thing I was thinking of, we interviewed on our last episode, episode 19, Bernard Means. And one thing he said, and I'm always trying to find a way to meld two different technologies and things that might not seem like they go together. But one of the things he said they've done is uh, we had a question from somebody that said, can you scan, do you have the resolution to scan individual like, like um, pottery sherds and then refit them back together? And he said, yeah, not only can we do that. But you can scan the individual sherds, digitally put them back together, fill in the blanks if you've got missing pieces, and then print a whole vessel rather than just print pieces of it and then you know put it together like that. You can actually digitally put it together and then print the entire vessel. So I'm wondering with laser scanning on some of these uh, some of this these architecture, if you could scan say you know pieces of it, walls and and distinct pieces where you can maybe get all around, get most of the way around it, or, or at least enough way around it to to produce something, and then you could you could almost you could almost three D print these at 
you know, one twentieth the scale or something like that, and just kind of play with it and put it back together. And if they're crumbled down into pieces, maybe you can, um, I don't know, pull these things back together like that and put a puzzle, put the puzzle back together. Do you think that would have any applicability down there, or am I totally pie in the sky on this one? Well, no, I think 3D printing and, and using technologies like that to create models that you can actually have in your hands and tangible is uh, a, a very um, attractive avenue for archaeology. Mm-hmm. And especially with uh, scanning, the ability to maybe scan and study artifacts where in a place like Belize, most of the researchers down there are coming from North America uh, or even overseas. But uh, to it, you have to go through... A whole series of uh, hoops to export artifacts because they're the cultural heritage of the country right. of Belize. So they own that material. So you have to go through all these permits and uh, formal requests if you want to export anything to study it later. So if you don't have a ton of time in the field uh, to do those studies, something like 3D printing, I think, is an amazingly attractive opportunity to be able to, whether it's stone tools, whether it's ceramics, whether it's even, you know, why not? Something like architecture, you might, that absolutely, I haven't seen it, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's not an excellent idea or that somebody wouldn't be able to find it extremely useful. Well, the thing I like about it too, and I've thought about this for CRM archaeology, and it was especially for work for you guys when you're out there for a well-defined field season, is that you could scan something in the field, and then if you have the ability to upload that scan or send it off to somebody, somebody somewhere else in the country, another Mayan expert that you're familiar with can, you know, when we get to this stage in our in our careers and our in our scientific abilities, they can download that scan and print it off in their office or their lab, and then take a look exactly what you're talking about while you're still in the field. I mean, that would be phenomenal. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, especially I, you know, think of things like lithics and ceramics where yeah. you know you might not be a ceramic expert but if you were had the ability to either scan something and with you know digital photography uh, you know all the colors and the textures and things like that are pretty well represented and then to be able to send it off to to somebody in a lab or who's uh, you know not there and they could give you their opinion things like that I think that would be amazing for sure for sure yeah I'm also thinking about you know the implications of these different technologies with LIDAR and also with 3D scanning and, and printing and imaging and all that, I'm thinking about the implications that these have for, you know, funding a project and then how far you can stretch the funding for these projects. You know, like you've got already, you know, instead of spending years and years surveying an area, you know, you've got a flyover that, yeah, it's expensive, but when you think about the the cost of years and years of, of survey, uh, would you say, Jack, that that's, that's a, a better payout? There's no question. I mean, it's, it would be absolutely impossible to send a ground survey team to cover that same, whether it, you know, whether it's just the area that I'm working in directly, 200 square kilometers, or the area that was surveyed in total with the LIDAR, which was about 1,200 square kilometers. That is absolutely impossible with a ground crew. Um, and with LIDAR, obviously, it provides a pretty good uh, starting point to then tailor research and come up with questions appropriate uh, that you're seeing from the LIDAR models. So absolutely, uh, if if you can afford it, it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, if, that, if that's what your research goals are too, is to understand you know everything that's in that area. I think from most 
archaeologist, excuse me, archaeologist perspectives, you want to know what's out there because, you know, people were influencing one another and how are they interacting with one another? What did their community look like? How many people? And just, you know, even simple things like that. With LIDAR, you can start to paint a picture uh, with those models. Um, but again, it still, still goes back to you have to put people on the ground to then go do the, uh, the dirty work, so to speak. Always yeah. goes back to job security. Always Absolutely. goes back to it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm wondering uh, what other sorts of remote sensing techniques do you guys use on a regular basis down there? Um, you know, frankly, if, if any. frankly, not not too many. Uh, I mean, there still are people uh, using satellite imagery um, to build models and elevation models, things like that. Uh, but uh, as far as remote sensing, there's not I'm, I'm, not too many other options. Uh, you know, again, you find uh, that even getting satellite imagery is expensive. Mm. Um, so th the cost of that is still significantly less than LIDAR. But what you see now is uh, people who are you know trying to use drones and find less expensive ways uh, to get that LIDAR data just because it's so much better. Uh, with what you can see and do with it um, if you're trying to expose the surface and find out, you know, where you have structures and, uh, you know, the size of a community or something like that. Um, it, I guess it just goes back to what your research goals are too. But yeah, you know, satellites and, and LiDAR, that's pretty much the extent of a lot of the remote sensing that I'm familiar with anyway. I, I guess mostly you do direct sensing with a, with a shovel and a trowel. There's yeah, exactly <laughs> that feels like a stone to me. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Nice. All right, Chris, do you have anything else on uh, on lighter? Not really. I I keep thinking back to uh, our conversation with Bernard Means on our last episode of uh, the Archaeotech podcast, where he was talking about how he walks around with 3D prints of stuff and. I just had the funny idea of him walking around with a miniature version of, you know, one of the sites you're working on, you know, just hanging out in his pocket and he just lays it out on a conference table. Some kind of but, temple. No, he won't lay it on yeah. a conference table. He'll lay it on a table like Starbucks and then take a selfie. That's what, that's what Bernard does. You know, they, uh, in Belize, the first site that had a major, um, LIDAR, uh, coverage was the site of Caracol, just mm -hmm. uh, sort of in central Belize, uh, yeah. south central Belize. And they did print a 3D model of it. And that, uh, if you've ever been to a site like Tikal, you know, I, I imagine most very large archaeological sites and a lot of them around the world, if you go and you start at sort of like a museum in the beginning, a lot of them will have models built up that, you know, that somebody sat down with a tiny little brush and painted all kinds of little things on there. But again, yeah. sort of uh, with modern technology and 3D printing, once you have that LiDAR image, you can print everything from, you know, the whole area that it covered down to, you know, individual uh, house mounds and little groups and things like that. So I, I know that uh, I know that Dr. Arlen Chase has a uh, 3D model of sort of the uh, monumental epicenter of Caracol. So that's that, that would be pretty cool. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That would be cool. Cool. All right. Well, you know, I, I had a question um, related to the satellite imagery. You mentioned how it's being, it's getting expensive, but I've heard a lot of people 
really, you know, for some stuff, really just using, um, especially for bigger things, just Google satellite images. In fact, some of the other satellite image repositories I've heard of have actually dropped fees on their stuff, like some of the government ones, because nobody's using them anymore. They're just going to Google Earth and mm-hmm. using those data is... And, and I know of some people... Um, like in Africa and Australia and things like that, that are just like, it's their job to pour over as an archeologist to pour over satellite data and just look for things that look out of the ordinary that haven't been discovered yet. Um, is that, would that be all that effective down where you're at because of the, the vegetation cover and the, and the forest cover and things like that? Or do you need like super awesome satellite coverage just to be able to see anything? Yeah. Uh, the, the vegetation poses the biggest limitation. Uh, but actually, there have been some pretty interesting studies of not even necessarily archaeologists, but people who are working with archaeologists and collecting different types of satellite imagery to study things like the paths where people are moving illegal drugs and border activity uh, based on you know things like infrared lighting and where paths are sort of, even if you can't see them that well underneath or, uh, you know, on something like a Google Maps with different infrared lighting, uh, you can actually start to see things like, uh, you know, trails uh, where, you know, across a porous border, things like that, or even different types of vegetation uh, that might indicate, at least, you know, in Belize where you find um, a lot of these sites that have been reclaimed by the jungle, um, there are different types of vegetation that prefer to grow on limestone, which is the material that Maya used to build their uh, structures with. So you have a little bit different vegetation signatures there. Uh, there there's a lot of different implications for things like that. Yeah, and I'm thinking as you're saying that, um, remind me, I during your poster, weren't you uh, dealing with least cost paths between sites? Yeah, one of the things that uh, was, was kind of funny, while I was in grad school doing my research, uh, that was while the LIDAR was being collected. So I didn't have access to it until afterwards. So my uh, MA thesis work was um, kind of ironically trying to sort of run a predictive model of where we think sites might be based on characteristics of known sites. Um, well, interestingly enough, uh, we were using uh, ViewShed. I was using ViewShed and cost path analyses to to look at things like that and try to understand where people would put other large sites. And then I spent an entire summer in 2012, I think it was 2012, with a Belizean guide and a rusty old pickup truck and our machetes with a <laughs> list of GPS points where I said, we think sites are going to be at these spots and going and trying to ground truth that. Well, that was an enormous undertaking that I, it sounds pretty straightforward, but I think I could be a mechanic at a garage just from having to, you know, even just work <laughs> on this truck that is not suited for, you know, going around such a rugged area. Um, but, you know, we found some sites that was really cool. It was, uh, it was rewarding to do that. But then the following year, once we got this LIDAR data, it was almost like a slap in the face that, you know, we revealed so much more in a couple hours of an airplane flying over that I had just spent, you know, an entire summer running up and down mountains and, you know, chopping snakes in half and just sort of, uh, some pretty interesting and, and hairy stuff that, uh, that, um, 
I don't know, I guess Chris, you as a surveyor can appreciate, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the <laughs> LIDAR absolutely blew it out of the water. Um, and so we have, uh, you know, again, different research questions and different ways of looking at it. That's amazing. But I mean, I think that's a testament to, uh, you know, like how, how important it is to have multiple modes of detection and research, uh, that, you know, you, you were out there toughing it out and then LIDAR came and confirmed what you had found through a different method. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's funny cause we've joked about job security and there is no replacing good old fashioned archeology, span um, in a sense. And so with all these technologies, it's sort of the, you know, blessing and a curse that we have them all because people will inevitably, uh, apply them improperly. Um, but anybody who does archaeology or research um, hopefully is well aware to be critical of, you know, what you're reading and things like that. And just because somebody uh, has published something um, or maybe wrote a book or whatever it might be, giving a, a talk or a paper or a poster doesn't necessarily mean they've used those technologies appropriately. So that's the balance of trying to, you know, take those specific tools, whether it's LIDAR, satellite imagery, even things like ground survey, and then, you know, produce some data and uh, be objective about it. And um, they all go hand in hand and, hope, you know, the goal is to try to use them appropriately all together where, where it works. Yeah. So I'll, I'll finish this up following and just on a couple things you said, uh, Jack. Yeah, I've been looking at doing, um, you know, setting up a research design to use drones out here in the Western United States for some survey because we, like it sounds like can happen where you're at too. I mean, you can survey a, a big, big area and find absolutely nothing, you know, and then you find this one amazing thing that maybe you could have just walked right to with the LIDAR data or something like that and then do the archaeology, you know, at that site or maybe widen out your transect intervals with the LIDAR data, stuff like that, you know, change your research methodology a little bit. It's not only just for, for me, it's not just to, I would say, you know, save money or something like that. It's really so we can spend more time doing the archaeology, spend more time doing the science rather than, um, well, it's nice to hike in the desert sometimes. Um, you know, we had a uh, we had a 30,000 acre project where we've recorded or we will have recorded probably 250 sites by the time it's all said and done. So that 250 sites takes up like 4% of that entire project area. <laughs> and the rest of it was just walking amongst boulders and rattlesnakes and dealing with injuries and, and things like that. So if we'd had allocated that time differently, um, just like what you say you guys can, can possibly do down there, if we'd allocated that time differently, not only would it have been safer for people, but it allows you to get, I feel like it allows you to get more done with the funding that you're given um, rather than, you know, rather, I, I don't think there's a job security problem. There's plenty to find out there. There's plenty of archaeology to do. There's plenty of test units to dig and things like that. But if we can eliminate some of the, some of the needless survey, you know, or survey that would become needless with technology, um, then it would be safer. And maybe we could focus on some of that other stuff. And, and maybe if you didn't have funding for doing, you know, X analysis on your project, you would have that funding if you didn't have to spend the first three weeks doing survey. You know what I mean? No, that's absolutely, absolutely the name of the game is, is using your time and money in the most effective way possible, depending on whatever it is right. you're looking at. So yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, where, you know, the, one of the big benefits of LIDAR now is that you can do exactly that. If your research is trying to do some, you know, you're, you're excavating at a site and you don't know where that site is, if you can find it on a LIDAR model, then you can go straight to it as opposed to, you know, like you said, spending a ton of time, uh, 
you know, surveying on the ground and walking around and that's, uh, you know, can for sure be looked at as a, as a waste of resources almost. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this up, uh, Jack, thanks for coming on. Is there anything you wanted to say that, uh, you know, regarding LIDAR remote sensing that we didn't, uh, that we didn't ask you or that we didn't get to? No, I think I sort of touched on it in sort of my last little, uh, last little question where, you know, it's, they're all, they're all, uh, very important technologies, but they have to be, uh, used properly and responsibly and know when, uh, you know, what you can say and what you can't say. And, um, yeah, I guess just using them appropriately like anything else. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. It was good to have you on. And uh, maybe after your next season out there, we'll have you on to talk about some of the things you guys found and stuff, stuff like that. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. That was fun. All right. Thank you. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.